This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Constipation is common, reportedly resulting in approximately 8 million visits to the healthcare provider every year. It might be related to foods we eat or maybe foods we don't eat, medications, or only rarely serious disease, but it certainly has a negative impact on our quality of life. Fortunately, in most cases, there are simple solutions to the problem, and there are certainly a large number of products available for the treatment of constipation. With us today to help us sort out this problem is Dr. Amy Fox Orenstein, a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Welcome, Amy. Good morning, Daryl. How are you? I'm fine. You know, you don't know this, but the first time I met you was about 12 years ago, shortly after you started on staff, and we were both speaking at the Selected Topics of Internal Medicine course, and I always like to see who's speaking ahead of me. Uh, And I saw you, and I didn't recognize your name, but I saw your topic was constipation. I figured, man, I'm golden here. (laughs) And you just gave an incredible lecture, and I think it was the best one of the conference, and I figured I can't catch a break. But Thank you. You know how constipation excites me. I know that. I know that. <laughs> so let's talk about constipation, and we'll just start out with a general question. What are, what are some of the common causes of chronic idiopathic constipation? Constipation can have uh, secondary causes, some of what you mentioned, uh, not enough fiber, not enough fluid in the diet, medications, um, and there are primary causes. The three primary causes of constipation are slow transit constipation, which is the least common and more often found related to uh, health situations, chronic health situations. Pelvic floor dysfunction, also known as defecatory dysfunction or obstructive constipation. And third, and the most common, is irritable bowel syndrome constipation predominant. All right. So how do we sort those out? How, as a healthcare provider, when a patient comes in with constipation, how would we determine which of those causes is resulting in their symptoms, or, or does it matter to us? Is the treatment the same? It does matter because oftentimes you can determine what the primary cause or primary causes, because they can overlap, contributing to constipation and make a big change, really improve someone's quality of life if you've identified what the cause are uh, or causes are. For example, the first thing that we want to do with the patient is take that history, get the information about medications that they've just started, medications they've been on for a while, um, their amount of fluid intake, how much fiber they're taking in or not taking in, because this can impact constipation, and those would be the simplest things to address right away. If they're having uh, also not just secondary but a primary cause, so IBS, slow transit, or pelvic floor dysfunction, there are certain questions that you can ask which will help to point you in that direction. And to get to that point, I'll speak to first slow transit constipation. Okay. So transit refers to neuromuscular problems where the colon isn't able to squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax. It doesn't have the, the right sort of or regular peristalsis. So the colon empties more slowly. And if a person's history 
is that they don't move their bowels but two times a week, one time a week, one time every two weeks. That gives you a clue that this is not just probably a secondary cause of constipation, which can be fixed with slight adjustments, but they might need more evaluation and some interventions, which we typically think of as being good for constipation, like eating a high-fiber diet, that might actually send them the wrong way. High-fiber diet in someone who has slow transit constipation, meaning that the colon empties very slowly, the fiber can tend to pack the colon and make symptoms of constipation worse. So one of the things, if if, uh, your patients tell you, I've tried fiber again and again, and my constipation gets worse, that might make you think about slow transit constipation. Also, pelvic floor dysfunction. Pelvic floor dysfunction is sort of a general term which includes about eight different reasons why the area I think of between the umbilicus and the anal sphincter, something is going awry there. Something is making uh, the case for why constipation, symptoms of constipation, are there. So it can be because of a rectocele. It can be because the anal sphincter does not relax properly, a condition called dysenergy, which is very common. It can be because of previous surgeries where the, uh, the flow of stool from the sigmoid colon down through the rectum and out uh, is simply not happening regularly. And to identify the causes of defecatory dysfunction or pelvic floor dysfunction, it takes some special tests. So you can get a sense of pelvic floor dysfunction because people may say, I get the sense of I'm never completely emptied. Or sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's easy, sometimes my stool are like ribbons or rope, and sometimes they're small, hard balls. If you get variety like that, that points you more towards a pelvic floor dysfunction or even an irritable bowel syndrome type uh, constipation. Well, most cases of constipation are usually relatively benign. But is there something that a patient might tell us that would raise our suspicion that maybe there's something uh, more ominous going on? If their symptoms are uh, suggestive of some sort of acute change, they've been having a bowel movement every two days for as long as they can remember, and then suddenly it got more difficult. Suddenly, it slowed down. They started having a bowel movement every three days, every four days. Or if they developed an unusual amount of pain in the lower abdomen, if they started seeing blood in their stool or uh, on their uh, toilet paper when they wipe, not all these things are suggestive of something ominous, but it certainly raises the, uh, the radar for a physician as to this probably needs to be evaluated to get more answers so that we can understand what's happening and rule out uh, things that would be very concerning and help to address what the problem is. Pelvic floor dysfunction uh, can oftentimes get worse or present as symptoms of worsening constipation acutely. So they can have that sort of flavor, if you will, of something ominous and yet not be ominous at all. That is, pelvic floor dysfunction can be treated um, and uh, patients respond very well, and the uh, symptoms go away. But as you you can tell, it takes understanding what type of constipation before you can actually figure out um, 
how serious it is and uh, how to move forward. Mm -hmm. A little while ago, you mentioned medications related to constipation. Which medications are we talking about? Which ones tend to either produce or make constipation worse? The most common that everyone thinks about are narcotics. They tell the the colon to slow down, essentially. They're uh, most often used for pain, but they're opioid agonists, and they slow the colon down. So it can cause not only constipation, but... um, all kinds of GI symptoms, which can be associated in other potentially worrisome things. Um, beta blockers, medications for blood pressure and heart, are uh, commonly associated with this. Uh, iron tablets, calcium tablets, even non-steroidal, something which is very commonly taken for pain, but uh, particularly in larger doses, can contribute to delayed evacuation and difficult evacuation. I know as a geriatrician, I'm commonly uh, preaching to avoid uh, anticholinergic medications in the elderly population. True, and, true, true. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's another common cause. Uh, we don't use too many tricyclics anymore, but uh, that was a common cause in the years past, I remember. Yeah, you're right. Keeping up to date in our field is easier when you can network with colleagues from all specialties. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Well, let's go over an approach to managing the patient who comes in with symptoms of chronic constipation? Where would you start? So it begins with the history. When a patient comes in with that complaint of constipation, I want to know how long the problem has been present, what have they done to treat it, have they had any sort of evaluations for constipation, has anything made it better, does anything make it worse? About how much fiber are you taking? Most people take between 9 and 15 grams of fiber when actually closer to 25 would be um, ideal. Um, Does fiber make your symptoms worse? How much fluid do you consume in a day? Um, Are you very active? Then you ask about uh, duration between bowel movements, difficulty evacuating. Do you need to strain? How much time do you spend on on the commode? to evacuate? Uh, Do you ever see uh, blood? Do you have anything protruding from the outside? The latter question relates to um, prolapse, which can worsen symptoms of constipation. If the tissue protrudes from inside, hemorrhoids can protrude to the outside and create a a blockage. Um, Understanding whether or not these are prolapsing hemorrhoids or uh, something which needs uh, early attention, surgical attention, can help you to know where in the direction of your treatment you need to start. All right, so let's say we have a patient and they describe no red flag symptoms, nothing for pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, We can't really identify any medications which might be contributing to this. Uh, Where do we start with treatment? Depends on what the symptoms of constipation are. Constipation is a very personal thing. People may be having uh, one bowel movement a day and feel they're constipated because they may be experiencing a sense of bloating. 
or they may have to push a little bit, or the stool may be small, hard balls, or uh, long and ropey. So understanding what their primary symptom is will help the physician get to uh, most likely an appropriate treatment that will help reduce their symptoms. So if they describe small, hard balls, then you know that the stool is Bristol stool scale number one to two. And what needs to happen to be able to evacuate easier is either to lubricate that stool or help it to be more bulky. I like to describe <clears throat> the uh, importance of having a large, soft, easy-to-pass stool, which will make it easiest to evacuate more completely. So I show people the Bristol stool form scale on my computer so that we can both be on the same page as far as where are they, how often do they have these various Bristol stool one to four to seven. And we try to help uh, create a recipe, if you will, for them to be able to get that larger, soft, easy to pass torpedo or kielbasa. <clears throat> I have them aim for food. I guess. <laughs> Hero. <laughs> <clears throat> so that can be by, say, adding a stool softener, which can just, it adds an emollient to the stool, and so it makes it more, as I say, slickery, it makes it able to slip out easier. Or a fiber supplement, something like psyllium or inulin fiber, can help to bulk the stool, so to create a larger stool that can... Um, pull more water and stool together and make it easier to create that torpedo. Can patients get adequate fiber with diet alone, or is a supplement usually needed? Patients can certainly get uh, adequate fiber by diet alone, but that can be a tough thing. When people are uh, sort of fixed in their dietary ways and they don't like the additions of a lot more string beans or spinach or whatever, then they might try it for a while, but they'd edge back to their previous preferences. I have no qualms uh, inviting people to take a fiber supplement every day. It um, typically is not going to interfere with um, their other medications or the rest of their day. It simply adds a bit more fiber to help bulk that stool. I do encourage people who are taking a, a bulk fiber to avoid taking the medication, that, that over-the-counter pill, uh, with their other medications because fiber supplements can bind. Mm -hmm. So you want to uh, not take it particularly, say, with a thyroid medication or heart medication or you separate it by a bit so that it doesn't absorb. Sure. Now, I've heard of both soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. What What's the difference? And is either better? Uh, well, there's, there's a, a mixed uh, feelings on soluble and insoluble. Um, <laughs> they're all good, though. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> soluble fiber is from fruits and vegetables and when it breaks down, it becomes a gel mixing with water and helps to make the stool softer and bulkier. Insoluble fiber does not break down, and it does not make that gel, but it does help to stimulate colonic activity. Both of them uh, result in fermentation. Our bacteria just love fiber, and they'll, uh, they'll ferment, 
which also helps to create activity in the colon, which uh, propels things forward, stimulates contractile activity by increasing gas and um, <clears throat> inducing peristalsis and helps to increase bowel movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that sums up. Okay. Well, what role does fluid play in patients with constipation? I know when I would recommend fiber, I would discourage them from taking a fiber tablet or a wafer because they would often not take that with adequate fluids. I encourage them to use the powder. So is fluid important? Fluid is important. You'll see on the back of the containers of fiber supplements that they they tell you to take with plenty of water. I find, now this is a personal preference, uh, that if... uh, If patients take their fiber supplement at the supper hour or right around there, it doesn't have to be with the the meal, but before, after, or with food, you don't tend to need as much water. And people are tending to drink during the meal or at least sip during the meal. So it helps to take away the potential to have a fiber uh, tablet lodge in the throat or become uh, bulky and potentially obstructive uh, in my over the course of my career, I can't say that uh, I've had issues with people not taking enough fiber, although in the elderly, that is, it's always a concern. Mm-hmm. But um, taking it with meals, I think, uh, can really make a, a big difference for uh, helping things go down and make it, uh, make it all the way through. Okay. And how about exercise or lack of exercise? What role does activity play in constipation? Sedentary lifestyle definitely adds to constipation. The GI tract just loves a little, a little exercise, a little activity, be that walking or be it something that you can lie on the floor and do, like uh, Pilates or bicycling, stationary bicycling, even walks to the mailbox. Um, it, most people will describe uh, improved evacuation, improved intestinal motility, less bloating, Uh, more effective emptying when they have some exercise to to stimulate things, uh, to get that uh, catecholamine surge uh, going and help to stimulate peristalsis. Mm -hmm. And how about caffeine? Caffeine is a stimulus also. Uh, Hot things are a stimulus. What I share with people is if you can combine multiple stimuli that trigger the colon to contract, you're going to have a greater likelihood of being able to evacuate your bowel on a, on a timed basis, maybe when you want to evacuate, <clears throat> than if you don't put your stimuli together. So I encourage people to wake up, which is the largest stimuli. If we look at a uh, colonic manometry study, we will see that waking in the morning is associated with the largest uh, contractile activity that happens in a day. Eating is the second largest stimulus, and taking hot items or hot caffeinated items is another large stimulus. So my recommendations are to get things really moving, why don't you try waking up in the morning, doing a bit of exercise, having a cup of hot, preferably caffeinated, eating, which stimulates the gastrocolic reflex, and I'll come back to that, and then having another hot possibly caffeinated beverage, all within the first half an hour to 45 minutes. So if you combine multiple stimuli, it's like getting all five 
best members of the basketball team on the court at once. You're going to have a lot of stimuli to tell that colon, contract, contract. It's going to be more likely that material gets moved through the colon down to the rectum to help stimulate that sense of, ooh, urge, I have to go, and then be responsive to the urge. Uh, When you get that urge to go, even if it's a small urge, you may want to take a trip to the bathroom then, uh, not stay too long. It's not a good idea to stay sitting on the commode for really any longer than 10 minutes because when we sit, the perianal area gets congested and our hemorrhoids, which naturally we all have a bit of hemorrhoids, particularly if we've been sitting for a while, uh, and they can regress uh, when we're not sitting or we don't uh, tend to sit so long in the commode. Um, Don't stay longer than 10 minutes because it can make it more challenging. You tend to get into a different position, sort of lean over, uh, elbows on your knees, and get really comfortable on the commode. That doesn't actually help uh, evacuation. It's oftentimes what people do, go in with a multi-chapter book or a good magazine (laughs) or their their iPhone or something, Mm -hmm. but not a good idea. Try to stay uh, in the bathroom for a short time. Uh, that is less than 10 minutes to be able to evacuate. And then if you feel that uh, you haven't gone completely, still get up, go away, and come back when you get the urge again okay. and, uh, and follow through at that point. So we try to retrain the colon to not be lazy but to be a little more attentive to those stimuli. And why don't you expand a little bit on that gastrocolic reflex? Right. So the gastrocolic reflex is something which... We all find out this happens when we watch um, babies. They eat and they poop, and it happens in adults as well. But we're able to (laughs) have more control over our reflexes. So if you've got children, if you've got uh, uh, someplace to be, then you can eat in the morning, the stomach distends, the colon reliably contracts. So the stomach distends, it sends uh, neurotransmitter information to the rectosigmoid area to start contracting. That's why a lot of people feel that, oh, I eat and I poop right away. The food that I'm eating now is coming right through. It's not typically the food that you've eaten right then, but it's stimulated by this gastrocolic reflex. I call it the lookout below (laughs) reflex because when you eat and your stomach distends, the colon starts to become ready for the next movement of food down through the GI tract. So it's a natural sort of mechanical process. All right. I have to ask one last question, and this is uh, my grandma's uh, recommendation for constipation. What about prunes? Is there more to prunes (laughs) than just fiber? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, there are uh, at least three things about prunes that make it a, a, a pretty neat tool in the medicine cabinet if that's where you keep them. Uh, Nana kept hers in the refrigerator, but that's okay. (laughs) Oh, Nana. (laughs) Um, Prunes, which are dried plums, have got a lot of fiber, as you mentioned. Um, I believe like 10 dried prunes have about, has about six grams of fiber. It also uh, has sorbitol, which is a sugar alcohol, which is not very well absorbed. You know that uh, many diets beverages and candies and that sort of thing has sorbitol in it, um, no calories, but it's not well absorbed. And so being malabsorbed,
malabsorbed, it trips down through the GI tract, resulting in a component of diarrhea. Also, fermentation, uh, fiber, uh, and prunes in particular, the sorbitol, our bacteria just love fiber and they love the sorbitol, and so they create more gas. Now, anybody who's eaten prunes knows that there's gas associated with it. But that fermentation helps to distend the intestine a little bit, and that distension, much like the gastrocolic reflex, triggers activity. So it helps to move things through in a peristaltic fashion. Well, we've been talking about constipation with Dr. Amy Fox Orenstein, a Mayo Clinic physician in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, practicing in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you for your time, Amy. You're welcome, Daryl. Thank you. Today's episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic CME. Mayo Clinic offers national and international courses. Network with your colleagues at an upcoming Mayo Clinic CME conference. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.